I'm John Banther, and this is Classical Breakdown. From Classical WETA in Washington, we take you behind the music. In this episode, Classical WETA's Linda Carducci joins me to explore one of the biggest holiday traditions, Tchaikovsky's Nutcracker. It's a ballet that's helped shape the Christmas sound for generations, but there's a lot more to the music than you might think. We get into Tchaikovsky's iconic sound, how he kept a new instrument hidden until the premiere, and even a brand new sound effect on the flute. It's such a staple today, Linda, that I don't think it would feel like Christmas without Tchaikovsky's Nutcracker. Now, am I normal or do I have like Nutcracker fever? No, you are absolutely normal. It has been ingrained in our society that the Nutcracker is something that is part of the Christmas tradition. And a big reason for that is because the beginning of the ballet takes place on Christmas Eve in a very festive Christmas Eve party. That's right. What are some of your favorite moments from this work? You know, every time I hear this, John, I say to myself, oh, that's my favorite. And then I'll hear the next track and say, no, that one is my favorite. So I will say that if I had to choose some favorites, I would go with the uh, the dance, the Arabian dance called Coffee, which is rather slow and sensual, but very emotional and moving. And I think one of the other ones that I love is the, the dance of the flowers. I just think that it is just so magical. And, of course, who, who wouldn't love the, uh, the dance of the Sugar Plum Fairy? Oh, yes. For me, I love those huge moments from Sugar Plum Fairy. Mm-hmm. And, you know, every year my grandmother took me to Ruth Eckerd Hall in Clearwater, Florida, to see the Nutcracker. And one of my favorite moments was always that cannon going off. Oh. Because they had pyrotechnics on stage and that explosion would always surprise you. Everyone would jump. Oh, I loved it so much. <laughs> I, I went to Nutcracker several times when I was young. My father used to take me to that and to uh, symphonic concerts. You know, I liked it the first time I saw it. And then I sort of dismissed it as, well, that's something for kids. And so I didn't pursue it at all. And I went to see it again when I was in my 20s. And I guess I just wasn't in the mood. I just thought, again, that this is something for children. But in my later years now, I've gone back to it and can have a, a deeper appreciation for it. That's true. It is. It's very, well, we'll see how it's, the music especially is from the view of a child. But this premiered back in 1892. It became this huge tradition in the United States, not until the 1950s with George Balanchine and the New York City Ballet. It had been performed a little bit, I think, in the 30s and 40s. I mean, very little. There was the war. It was just very low key. But Balanchine in 1954, I mean, he brought this thing to epic proportions. I mean, For one thing, it's a fun, cheesy Christmas story. And, of Mm -hmm. course, we love that. And he had a couple of things up his sleeve. One was he had one of the greatest dancers of their generation, uh, Maria Tallchief. Mm -hmm. Her performance of Sugar Plum Fairy was just critically acclaimed. But if you don't know ballet, that probably means nothing to you. So Balanchine also packed the show with kids. And when you pack a show with kids, you have kind of a built-in audience because – Well, for instance, my wife, Zena, was in the Nutcracker when she was a kid. Mm -hmm. Her parents came. Her sister came. Her (laughs) grandmother. Her cousins. Friends. I mean, we've got two van loads of people here for multiple performances. So the audience was packed. The huge Christmas tree, I think it was – he had to fight for that in the budget saying the Christmas tree has to be humongous and there's no – that has to happen. But it's amazing how some of the music now from that ballet has come into our popular culture in so many ways. We see it on commercials. We hear a piece, even if we don't know the ballet, and we know that that is from the Nutcracker. 
Although the Nutcracker first run in 1892 was not a huge success, the concert suite of music was a success. And it actually was premiered before the ballet? Yes, that's what I hear. It did premiere before. But what I understand, that the, the objections to the ballet itself when it premiered was that uh, too much use of children, and it was quite a deviation from the original E.T.A. Hoffman story. That was a, a criticism. And thirdly, that the Prima Ballerina doesn't really make her big dance until really toward the end of the entire ballet in the uh, the Sugar Palm Ferry. So th- there were some some criticisms of it. But as you say, I don't think anybody criticized the music itself. And on that note about the story. The original one, kind of terrifying, E.T.A. Hoffman's The Nutcracker and The Mouse King. And it was kind of watered down from there to this version called The Story of a Nutcracker that Alexander uh, Dumas did. And then it was Marius Petipa that then made the story for Tchaikovsky, watering it down even further. But remember, these fairy tales often have kind of very terrifying origins, don't they? They do. And there are some psychologists who believe that that helps children to to have a little bit of an introduction to terrifying world. It helps them grow. I'm not saying that I endorse that, but that, that is what some philosophers may believe. But you're right. The E.T.A. Hoffman original story uh, was, was frightening and had some very macabre elements to it. And then Dumas made a translation of that. And as you said, Marius uh, Petipog took that and revised it a bit and worked very closely with Tchaikovsky. They had worked together on um, Sleeping Beauty, I believe, and had had some success there. And Petipa would work with Tchaikovsky in crafting the music. He didn't craft the music itself, but what he would do is direct Tchaikovsky as to the, the length of each segment and the type of dance. And then Tchaikovsky, with his great talent for ballet, would craft music that would suit dancers and how they would be able to perform. It was basically written to order. Yeah, it was written to order. So let's hear from someone who's actually danced Tchaikovsky's Nutcracker. And we're going to hear from our resident WETA ballet dancer, Sandra Kushner. The parts I got to do in Nutcracker were pretty varied. I was in the Corps de Ballet, and, which includes Waltz of the Flowers and Snow. And then I got to do some of the individual dances that are part of the Land of the Sweets. Russian, Chinese, Mother Ginger with the bonbons, the little kids that go underneath the, the giant hoop skirt. I think Arabian was my favorite role. In the whole ballet, there's a lot of intensity to it. During snow, it's the, the whirlwind of it all. And during the different Land of the Sweet stances, they're very energetic. And the battle scene as well. And for the Arabian dance, it kind of slows everything down. It's still intense and dramatic, but it's slower. And so I think it gives the audience a chance to kind of sit back and catch their breath. You never get sick of it. We always used to joke about it in rehearsal. We're like, oh, if I have to listen to this piece one more time. But, you know, I'll find that after we've done with our production and I'll be in the grocery store and I'll hear one of the pieces over the loudspeaker and I can start seeing the dancing in my head. And so you never get sick of it. And the music is so strong and tells the story so well 
that it also allows choreographers to do different interpretations of it. And they all work because it's building on that solid foundation of the music. I just love that, Linda. I mean, even if you're performing the music, dancing the music, night after night, just hearing it out in the open in the wild, still, it still means something and it brings you into that moment. It does. And it shows you, too, sometimes you can take things out of context. You can yourself be out of context from the performing stage and hear it somewhere else. And all of a sudden, you get a different perspective because you're out of context. And as I had mentioned earlier, for me, it was a scene of of just having seen it so often and listened to the music so often that I finally grew to have a great appreciation for the way that uh, Tchaikovsky orchestrated this. There are a lot of big moments in here, as you said. We see them in commercials, movies, cartoons, pretty much everywhere. But there's also some things that I think people may not know about the music or may just kind of be in the background. So we're going to get into all of that right after this. Can't get enough Nutcracker? Then join us on Christmas Eve at 7 p.m. for a full performance of Tchaikovsky's Nutcracker Ballet on Classical WETA. Listen online at classicalweta.org or in the Classical WETA app. Don't miss Tchaikovsky's Nutcracker on Christmas Eve at 7 p.m. on Classical WETA. Okay, Linda, as we're getting into the music now, we're not going to get into every single little thing with the whole plot and everything, but we're going to point out some some big moments, some things that are, I think, unique. And kind of starting from the beginning in the overture, part of what I think is just the Christmas sound is part of the orchestration that Tchaikovsky uses, especially his use of percussion. For me, when we hear this triangle in the opening, to me, it just brings Christmas. Without the triangle, that's not Christmas. No, it's it's magical when he adds the triangle. That was a really stroke of genius to put that in there. Yes. Also in the first act, too, there are toy instruments that the children are playing with. So there's a, a rattle, for example, and a cuckoo and a little drum. That adds to the percussion. Oh, yeah. The toy instruments are especially fun. We'll get to those in in just a moment because it actually comes from another work, actually an opera by Tchaikovsky as well. But part of this kid-centric view also appears right after the overture in this march where often on stage it's boys playing soldiers, marching around, um, doing different movements. And so we hear this march and it sounds militaristic, but it's not real military. It's very playful. fun with the trumpets, but what makes it so playful is are those strings sweeping up yes. and down. Yes, very much so. And when we consider, too, that um, you know the, this opening scene of the Nutcracker takes place in a family home, a relatively affluent family home in the 19th century, and dancing was very important as far as entertainment. They didn't have radio, television, iPods, etc., And dancing was a very important part of people entertaining themselves when they would gather together. So we're seeing then dances, a lot of dances that occur at this Christmas Eve party at the Stahlbaum. 
family, including that march. And after this, there's these parents that are dancing. And this is a moment where I think it especially brings that quote of Balanchine to life where dance is music made visible, but also when we think of the opposite, we can see the dance while we're listening to this music. And we have that moment here with the parents dancing, and then it takes a turn. that's a 19th century version of like a record scratch and someone walks into the room or walks into the bar and everyone turns their heads and you're this kid and you look over and you see this kind of mysterious character enter into the into the room and I guess you're not sure what to make of it and that mysterious character is very important to the entire ballet that's um Drosselmeyer who is a councilman and uh, a friend of the family and he arrives and he is the catalyst for the entire ballet to change what is going to happen from just a traditional Christmas Eve party at someone's home and then the following morning, Christmas morning, his gift and his arrival will change the entire narrative. And this is where he's passing out toys to the kids. There's some dancing dolls, and you often hear um, like a ratcheting sound, and they're pretending that they're winding them up and everything, and then they, I guess they break or they become dangerous and they have to put them away. But he hands out these um, toys, and we hear them in the score, these toy instruments. And Tchaikovsky actually wrote in the score, these instruments are essentially the same as those used in the first scene of The Queen of Spades. They should be played at the points indicated by the children in the scene. We have the um, rattle trumpet, drums, the cuckoo, uh, quail, cymbals. He also wrote rifle in there. And this one, it changes a little bit from performance to performance. It makes it kind of unique what people end up choosing. Yes. And these dolls, by the way, they pose a challenge for, for dancers, I would think, because they are supposed to be sort of stiff, almost like a, a toy doll would move in a sort of a stiff way and bent, if you will. So I would imagine as a dancer, that would be a, a, an interesting uh, dance. I didn't think about that. That is right. You're doing the opposite, I guess, of what you're used to doing, which is just being very flowing and very... Graceful and flexible. Yes. Yeah. And mm-hmm. now you're just, you're doing the robot mm-hmm. in 1892, and then you break kind of thing. Right. But it's so much fun hearing those toy instruments and everything come to life. And it's so much fun to see, again, what each orchestra, what each company does to mimic those toys. A big part of the ballet is this Christmas tree that grows, right? Yes. And that's that was also one of my favorite things to see. One, I was just trying to figure out as a kid, how is it growing so much? Where is it coming from? Oftentimes, it's just, of course, a screen that they're pulling up. Yes, yeah. But that starts the, the whole magical scene. So if we consider, say, the first scene of this Christmas Eve party in this beautiful home uh, as being somewhat realistic, Now we start to take on a fantasy, a magical element to the ballet. The Christmas tree is growing. The nutcracker is going to start coming to life now. There's going to be the the war going on in the family living room that will happen at night with mice that come to life. Let's listen to a little bit of this section where we have 
this Christmas tree growing where it is becoming more, I guess, kind of mysterious. There's some things happening here that are very, very typical Tchaikovsky. And if you listen to our Life of Tchaikovsky episode, you might hear some familiar things there where he is using contrasting motion. The strings are getting higher and higher, repeating this sequence. The winds and the brass are getting lower and lower, and the same, they're moving down in sequences. And there is, it sounds like there's no end point, so it's, we're creating this tension as we're stretching further and further apart, and then it all comes together at the end. So that describes the growing of the Christmas tree. As you said, it keeps continued, the, the strings continue to climb and climb mm-hmm. to, to signify the growing Christmas tree. And you don't know, when you're listening to it, especially the first time, you don't know where it's going to end. You don't know where it's going mm-hmm. in the music. Mm-hmm. And as you said, that brings us to a battle, that canon, my favorite part, of course, when I was a kid, but very fantastical in the in this section with the battle where the mice are running around on stage. Again, it's so much fun to see how different productions approach this, whether it's little mice or humongous, you know, overfed mice waddling around the stage. But here's how Tchaikovsky brings all that in musically. very pretend war. Yes, it's really quite inventive. Um, He uses uh, percussion to great effect in that. So we hear a good amount of percussion coming in in that and the brass to to sort of indicate that there's almost a military sense here now. There's a war going on with mice versus the nutcracker. And some of of his music that he has used here that you were just playing, uh, John, reminds me of some of his symphonic music which I think goes back to that whole theory that Tchaikovsky took ballet music as seriously as he did his symphonic work. Oh, yeah. You hear that all the time in his music. He only wrote three ballets, but I hear so much dance in all of his, all of his music, from his symphonies, operas, of course, and also especially, I think, his violin concerto, too. Very, very dance-like in a lot of the music. I hadn't thought about that, about the violin concerto, but next time I hear it, I will, I will consider that. Do it. You'll be surprised. <laughs> the battle continues, and then the Nutcracker defeats this mouse king or this rat king, and he hits him with a sword. But Clara, our, our main character here, who um, you know, loves her toy Nutcracker, who is now fighting, she kind of saves him, right? She throws a slipper at him? Yes, she does. She um, comes downstairs from her bed at midnight to to sort of check on the, on the nutcracker, and it's all very dark there, and she's all by herself. And she sees the growing Christmas tree, as you mentioned just a moment ago, and all this magic is starting to happen. And then, of course, the mice are in this battle against the nutcracker and his gingerbread soldier. So there's this, there's this battle going on. Clara throws her shoe at the mouse king, to, to try to get him away. And sure enough, they retreat with that. And then I think that's when the prince finally gets, gets the final stab into the, yes. uh, to the Mouse King. But he has so much ingratitude to Clara for helping here that that's when he says he's going to transport her to this magical kingdom of sweets. And this is when, is this when he 
turns from this nutcracker into this handsome prince? Yes, he is transformed at that point. Yes. Okay. It brings us to, actually we're going to listen to part of this, this section where he's thankful and taking her to this magical, magical land. You know, John, it almost reminds me of a symphonic poem. I mean, not just ballet music, but a, a programmatic symphonic poem where there are so many images that are so beautifully depicted in the orchestration. Yeah, that, I guess that's why it's so it's so easy to hear without seeing the dancing. It is that sure it just is. brings it in. Mm-hmm. And this is a part in Act One. There's two acts, and in this part in Act One, for me, this is kind of when I'm listening to this. This is the biggest moment so far in Act 1. We've had the huge Christmas tree growing. We've had the battle. But this is kind of the longest, most sustained, grandiose section. Like you're saying, it's like a symphonic poem. It's He's treating, again, like you said, ballet as serious as, as symphonic work. And that's what he's bringing into this part. Just before Act 1 ends, we get something that I don't think is always heard live. And that is a children's chorus. Sometimes there are children off stage or dressed as different characters, but just to give a, a glimpse here how it sounds in recording. What strikes me is how modern it sounds. That's interesting. It could be in Home Alone or something. It, it certainly does. I think, by the way, that was a brilliant touch by Tchaikovsky to put that in. Because what to me it does is enhance the fact that now we are entering into a child's world. You know, we, we had the reality of the parents' world in the first scene. Now we're entering into this magical world of children. That brings us to Act Two. We are in the land of sweets. We are at the castle of the prince. And I guess it was the sugar plum fairy. They greet them because she was kind of watching over the castle while he was gone, from what I understand. And again, Tchaikovsky's serious here about the music. He brings in something completely new. I don't think, I think this is the first use in symphonic music of flutter tongue in flutes. And flutter tongue, if you don't know, well, first, let's just listen to the sound itself in the recording. I'm sure that caught people even just in the premiere. I do. And and what is your feeling for why Tchaikovsky asked for that particular effect? I think he heard it the year before at one of the conservatories, a student or a teacher for what we would call extended technique. Maybe there's a new piece that's kind of a test piece that you would have in a jury for, you know, the end of year exam. And they often include extended technique to, well, just kind of push you further. And I think he heard it a year before, and then he just held on to it and have just put it here and felt that it fit with this kind of fantasy scene here. And the flutter tongue, all wind instruments can do it, and you see it. It's pretty it's pretty rare to see it in, in your music, especially from this time period. It's just basically rolling your R's while you're playing your instrument. Interesting. So it's another layer of texture to the whole thing. Oh, yeah. It, it, it elevates the entire, the entire moment. 
The prince is very thankful for saving him, isn't he? Because now they're about to enjoy sweets from all around the world brought in. Yes, he takes her through this uh, pine forest that uh, Tchaikovsky depicts in such magical uh, orchestration to the eventually to the castle, as you say, and to the uh, the kingdom of sweets. When you watch this, I think this is a very impressive part for Clara and the prince because they're just sitting there on stage, center stage, and they don't move for like half an hour. And so you, if you think about it, you have to sit there and act. You have to be not slouching. I get uncomfortable sitting somewhere for two minutes. <laughs> yes, and Clara has to be uh, engaged, though, with her face, you know, because she's seeing this parade of, of beautiful dances and sweets in front of her. So, of course, she's sitting in wonderment. But you're right, physically not doing anything. That's right. She has to react. They both have to say, oh, how wonderful. And I mean, I would just put a cardboard cutout and, <laughs> you know, call me at the end. <laughs> but the the first dance, the first suite is, is chocolate, uh, the Spanish dance. And the trumpet solo is so much fun in this, isn't it? It's just kind of it's we're hearing the trumpet in many different ways throughout this ballet. Oh, there's wonderful brass in the entire work. I mean, he uses French horn um, trumpets, certainly, as you say, that will be in this dance. Um, later on, we'll hear even um, some, some trombone and, as you know, tuba. Yes. Another kind of moment that pops out in this chocolate dance, and again, these are a lot of these dances are very, very short, but it pops out, and that is this percussion instrument right here. The castanets. Castanets, which brings us an image of uh, flamingo dances. Yes. So we know that somehow Tchaikovsky knew that, that this was uh, typical for, for Spanish music, at least at that point, or traditional Spanish music. I don't know that he had traveled to Spain. He had been to Europe before and went to Italy and, and other places. Oh, yeah. But he was aware of, of what to do when he would be depicting traditional music of Spain. And you don't hear castanets a lot, I think, in this time period. You actually hear them a great amount in the earlier period, like the Baroque period, earlier classical, when you have some of these actual dances from Spanish composers. That's true. They used a lot of little percussion pieces. But I don't hear it. You don't find it in any symphonies or anything else. But you said he brings it in here for this for this moment. Chocolate. And now we get to the coffee dance, which is very slow and sensual, which for me, it sounds like the opposite of coffee, but, mm-hmm. you know, okay, it's very, I would be very jittery, but this is one that it's also become problematic, I understand, I think, especially in the last 60 years since it's become popular in the United States, even Balanchine said, this one is more for the dads than the children. I see. Because they depict this woman as a seductress, belly dancing, and a lot of modern productions, kind of, they alter the costuming and they alter the intent, I guess, of the of the movements to make it more, this is for everyone. Yes, but if we were to divorce the the visuals from this or have, say, less seductress uh, clothing, I still think that this particular piece that he wrote describing coffee, well, Arabian, really, the Arabian uh, tradition, I still think it's a very moving and beautiful segment. It's so poignant. It's almost, uh, there's a, a bit of... Almost sadness to it, I think, a little bit, because here Tchaikovsky makes the oboe rather prominent in this coffee Arabian dance, and it sort of has this sensual uh, image to it. 
that is is slowly done with a long line, and the oboe is soaring above the strings in certain places, that I think adds to the the poignancy and um, the sensuality, if you will, of that particular dance. And that brings us to the tea, to the Chinese dance. And this is one that has actually become very problematic, especially in the last, of course, 60 years that Nutcracker has become popular in the United States. And that's because productions have resorted to using caricatures and just really racist stereotypes that have nothing to do sometimes with Chinese culture. Things like pointed index fingers will include conical hats, uh, the mustaches, black wigs, even using makeup to change the color of their skin or their or their eyes. But thankfully, of course, it doesn't have to be that way. That's not part of the plot itself. And a campaign started a few years ago called Final Bow for Yellowface. And it's a group of people in ballet, choreographers, directors, who have been working with and partnering with and educating ballet companies and people just on this issue and showing them, look, we should bring in, you can bring in actual Chinese culture, you can bring in appropriate costuming and movements to make this something really great and not this unfortunate you know, caricature. And the movement is not to change the music. We're not saying we will ban this music. We're saying let's, let's change how it was presented because they are considered to be stereotypes now and not always flattering stereotypes. So we look to directors um, who can maybe produce something that, that is a little bit more um, uh, encompassing and accepting now without having to change the music. Oh, that's right, because the the music is great. This one's this one's fun, and all these things aren't necessary for this plot. And that brings us to the next dance, Linda. That is, right now, it's my favorite. Maybe tomorrow that changes, but that is the Trepak dance, the the Russian candy cane dance. Oh, and this is so lively. And if you heard this all by itself, you would know immediately that this is from the Nutcracker. It's so lovely, and it's so wonderful too to see this particular music danced. For me, it's how kind of direct and pointy everything is. And then when the tambourine comes in, that is just, uh, that just for me, that lights everything up. The end, we can listen to the end here, where some recordings just kind of speed up, and some just, it's in a cello rondo, as we'll say, in music, where you're just getting faster and faster and faster, sometimes all the way to just the final note. I just love it. I do, too. And you mentioned the use of the tambourine, which was not very typical back in in that era to to incorporate a tambourine into music. But he uses it so perfectly there. To me, it has a very Russian sense. And I'm sure that Tchaikovsky felt very comfortable writing that particular work. This is another example of the interesting percussion that is used throughout the entire ballet. Um, we heard, um, you know, we've heard snare drum, we've heard triangle, as you as you showed us earlier, tambourine, castanets, and we'll hear more. Oh yes, the next one is another one that has that classic Christmas sound. That's a dance of the reed flutes. It's a Danish dance, right? Yes, it is, and appropriately, uh, Tchaikovsky scores this for uh, for some flutes. That's just perfect. It's it's gorgeous. It's just simply in its very simple state, very gorgeous, to represent, I believe, marzipan. Yes. 
And these treats to us, I mean, you just go to 7-Eleven and just buy a handful of Oreos and you're done. But back then, I mean, these were, I think for a lot of people, especially if you're in rural Russia, for instance, these are luxuries. When you get something like an orange, when you get marzipan or that candy cane. Yes. These, these were things that you would get for Christmas sometimes, like you say, an orange. Now, actually, because of listening to this music, I was looking last night to buy some candy canes. <laughs> I'm trying to find some. The next dance is Mother Ginger, which I guess is now also a Disney character. This is very, very fun because we've got the the costuming. This woman, most oftentimes on stilts, I think, walking with this huge skirt and all the kids running out. Yes, and, and there are clowns with her. percussion. Is that a tam-tam? That's just, again, the the tambourine. Oh, it's the tambourine. Okay. Certainly not castanets, but yeah, I think you're right. It's tambourine. These percussion instruments, it's so funny how they seem so simple. They are very, to get precise sounds, it's very, very difficult. So oftentimes in tambourines, hitting it in a certain way can give you a harder percussive sound and less of the cymbal sound that you, those little cymbals that are attached all around it. So they're able to vary how they play it to get these different effects. So a special skill for a percussion player. Oh, yeah. Maybe it's all in my head, but when I listen to this one, I see the woman coming out in the huge dress because when she comes out, she's it's very hard to walk. She's moving inch by inch by inch by inch, and I feel like I hear in the music, it's very, very active, but it's kind of like move an inch, move an inch, <laughs> move an inch as well. And the next one is another one of those where it's that classic Christmas sound. The flower waltz. Yeah, the dance of the flowers. I find this to be just a, a perfect dance and really very moving. And where it occurs in the uh, in the ballet, which after we've seen some rather lively dancing and some fun dancing too with the clowns, now we have a complete break. We have grace and beauty and flexibility in these dance of the flowers. And they just come out and visually look so beautiful, dance very gracefully and um, are accompanied by uh, lively but lyrical music. And there's some special things that are happening here with the music and with the dance. And you're talking about how it's so graceful. And part of that is also the costuming, I think. I don't know the all exact things, but it's like silk or something in their in their dress. So when they move their leg up, the dress kind of hangs for a moment and kind of floats back down. And in the music here, you hear how it almost sounds like a flower is just kind of blowing around gracefully in the breeze because we have these longer notes that once the players start the note, they immediately start to decay. So you get this kind of wafting quality to it that matches up with the dancing and matches up even with the costuming. It matches the visuals of the of the dresses sort of decaying, going down. Oh, yeah. That's lovely. You know, it's almost as if this is a, a little dessert segment after we've had some some meat and potatoes before that. Oh, yeah. That's a good point. This one is a lot of fun. It's a, you know, it's a big corps de ballet, I think it's called. There's a large group on stage doing this, matching up with the music. And that is just a such a Christmas sound. And that brings us to the big pas de deux, the big duet with the Sugar Plum Fairy and her cavalier or something like mm-hmm. that, right? Yes. Mm-hmm. And it's interesting. You said before, this is now when we're getting our 
star of the show, the the principal dancer. Yes. And as I say, there was some criticism in the ballet when it was first premiered because people thought, well, we're getting this prima ballerina. It's sort of late in the show, aren't we? A little bit of the ballet. But I will say that um, the, the wait is worth it. Oh, it is. We have a prominent harp in this, in this pas de deux. But we also have the use of a scale. Were you going to mention something about that? I was going to mention that because... I think Tchaikovsky was even bet, or was kind of on a bet that, hey, I can make a beautiful melody out of just a scale. He didn't say that it had to be ascending, so he decided to do it descending with gorgeous harp accompaniment. Oh, yes. It makes it, I mean, again, it matches up with the movement on stage, and that's something you can hear in your head. It's a simple scale going down, and this is where... Remember before we had that typical Tchaikovsky moment with the Christmas tree rising, the way he uses the strings and then the winds against each other with contrasting motion. Another thing that he's doing in that and here is repeating something. This scale repeats just throughout this entire section, and it varies a little bit, it changes a little bit, and it gets bigger and bigger and bigger. moving. This, I think, too, is an example of uh, Tchaikovsky taking direction and working with Petipa, who was the, the choreographer and also wrote the libretto. There was a libretto used in some performances of the ballet, in which Petipa would tell him here what the segment was supposed to represent and what the dancers would be doing. And that would give a direction to Tchaikovsky as to how to write the music. So I think he did so brilliantly because in the beginning of this pas de deux, you know, the pas de deux is two dancers. And it's the music is delicate and accompanies them, but it doesn't override them or supersede them in any way. It just accompanies them beautifully. And also it gives us a really nice impression of this sugar plum fairy who is supposed to be this benevolent figure. And so we have this lovely music that accompanies her that doesn't overpower until it sort of reaches a climax toward at the end. But I think Tchaikovsky was very sensitive to make the music uh, support these two people in a very sort of a light, graceful way. And the end of this section is so huge. In the first act, where we had that moment where I was talking about this feels like the biggest part of that act. For me, this is also in act two. This is the biggest, most grandiose moment of the entire second act. Okay, we've been talking about classic Christmas sounds. I feel like this ballet has really enforced these tropes that we see in cartoons and in movies. Yeah. I think this next one is probably the biggest one of all. And we have a special new instrument here, don't we? Yes. This particular movement notably uses a a celesta, which was at the time very unique. It's a type of keyboard instrument in which keys are connected to tuned metal plates almost has sort of a glass sound to it. But it had only recently been invented, and Tchaikovsky encountered the celesta when he was in Paris. He was so impressed with it that he had one sent to him in Russia. 
but he kept it secret, almost like Verdi kept one of his very famous melodies secret because he didn't want it going out into the, into the world yet. Tchaikovsky would not allow the Cholesk to be used until the final rehearsal for the Nutcracker for fear that Nikolai Rimsky-Korsakov and Alexander Glazunov might discover it and use it before Tchaikovsky could use it in the Nutcracker. Oh, that's such a good story. It's, it's like, you know, the secret recipe for Coca-Cola, and Tchaikovsky's holding on to this because it is such a unique sound. And if, if you've never seen one before, we'll have a picture and some video on the show notes page. But it's kind of funny to see some people play it because sometimes they're really, really small. And it's kind of like, what is it, Linus at the keyboard in um, Peanuts or Snoopy mm-hmm. kind of idea. But the sound, it is so fantastical. It's perfect for this magical kingdom and for this dance of the sugar plum fairy. It, yeah, it's gorgeous for that. He was he was smart to keep it under wraps so that no one else would know about it until this was debuted. The way that it sounds here in this dance of the sugar plum fairy, to me, is um, icy. Uh, I almost hear glass and ice. And really, this takes place in the winter. And they had gone through a winter pine forest. There were some winter associations here to this entire second act. So I, I hear ice and glass when I hear that celesta being played in that dance. But is this an instrument that comes in different sizes, and, and is it played with a mallet? So it's, it kind of looks oftentimes just like a tiny piano. The keys look just like you would see on a, on a regular piano. I think they might come in different sizes in terms of the range of it because it is a very high sounding instrument it sounds like a like a vibraphone because it's these mm-hmm. metal plates mm-hmm. but a vibraphone you hit with a mallet these are mallets that are hit when you're using the keys and it sounds like a very small sound but it's it's actually a very very big sound when you're if you're playing next to one or you're standing next to one when it's being played you can you can definitely feel it. it's not it's small but it's not soft at all it's the end of their dance, the Sugar Plum Fairy. And now it's time for, I guess, Clara to come back to reality, right? She has to go back off in a sleigh. Yes. And as you were saying, for all this time, a good portion of the second act, she's been seated watching all of this in front of her with the um, prince next to her. We've been focusing on the dances that are occurring on the stage. So we haven't really focused too much on Clara, but now she will reemerge. And she's back in her nightgown in many of the uh, productions to show that she's coming back home now from this magical world, almost like Dorothy in in The Wizard of Oz. Oh, that's a good point. (laughs) I like that. Is she going to be happy to come home? We don't know. It's always nice to come home. But boy, this was certainly a lovely magical world she was in. Absolutely. And I guess it was... In the end, for her, is it was it kind of a fever dream or was it real? Was it Narnia? What was it? You don't know, I guess. <laughs> right, right. So that almost gives another association to the Wizard of Oz. Oh, yes. Well, I love this ballet so much. It's just so much fun to listen to, to watch. And again, I love that Balanchine quote where dance's music made visible. Tchaikovsky does the opposite, makes the dance visible through just hearing the music. Yeah, that's a wonderful way to think about this. Thank you.
Do you have anything more for Tchaikovsky's Nutcracker? Well, I think what I would add is look at this aside from all of our previous associations with it, the way things have been used in commercials, for example, or in movies, and really just concentrate on the music and listen to it carefully, particularly this inventive orchestration that Tchaikovsky used. And gorgeous melodies, by the way. We didn't touch as much on that as we should have. Gorgeous melodies in this thing. Oh, yes. So if we can just sort of uh, take a look at the music and study and listen to the music carefully take away some of the associations that we have in popular culture, I think we'll be very impressed with this work. And it's a short ballet, too. It's like less, it's like an hour and 20 minutes or so. And you can listen to just the first act or just the second act. You don't have to listen to the whole thing. But it is on the shorter side. He packs so much into this. Another example of his genius. He didn't live long after this. No, just another year. Well, thank you so much, Linda, for sharing some of your insight into The Nutcracker. Thank you for inviting me, John. It was fun. Thanks for listening to Classical Breakdown. For more information on this episode, visit the show notes page at classicalbreakdown.org. If you have any comments or episode ideas, send them to classicalbreakdown at weta.org. I'm John Banther. Thanks for listening to Classical Breakdown from Classical WETA.